Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, uh, everyone. Thanks for signing in today to watch this webinar uh, called COVID Cover-Ups, Coronavirus Reporting in Iran, North Korea, and Russia. Um, we have a few uh, housekeeping notes that we want to get out of the way first. Um, I believe there will be some information popping up on your screen. Uh, the session will be recorded and it will be available on the heritage.org website in approximately 48 hours. All attendees are in listen-only mode. And if you want to pose a question, uh, you can see a question box on your screen, um, I think to your right. And uh, you can type in your question there and somehow through magic, it'll find its way to me. And then uh, I will ask it if it's uh, family friendly and appropriate. Uh, so we have a very uh, good uh, set of panelists with us here today uh, to talk about this issue. I'll introduce them in a minute, but first I would like to tee up the discussion. Uh, it is far too early to really know how the uh, COVID-19 global pandemic is going to impact geopolitics. We are already seeing um, some of the effects right now around the world, um, a lot of inward focus by countries, uh, worrying about their domestic situations and rightfully so, allocating huge amounts of national resources to ensure that they can fight and confront this pandemic. But while all of this is going on, there are still countries around the world who, uh, are, who were causing problems before the pandemic, uh, will cause problems during the pandemic, and will cause problems after this pandemic. And many of these countries um, have been a little uh, cagey on how they're reporting the impact that uh, COVID is giving their country. Uh, not being very transparent. Uh, there's a concern that some of these countries lack the resources to deal with the pandemic, that they um, have been slow to react. Uh, and if we know anything, some of these uh, uh, countries that uh, cause geopolitical instability, when they get desperate, when the political situation or the domestic situation in their countries gets desperate, then they start acting in a belligerent or aggressive way to their neighbors. And the three countries we're gonna discuss in some detail today are Iran, North Korea, and Russia. Uh, I will uh, briefly mention who the speakers are now, and then I will introduce them again uh, before it's their turn to speak. And then we will go into the question and answer session, which as I, as I said, you are all on um, a listen-only mode. But if you want to pose a question, there is a question box you can type it in. So our first uh, speaker today, she will focus on the situation in Russia, and that's Maria Snegovia. 
She is the senior. She is an adjunct uh, research fellow at CEPA, the Center for European Policy Analysis, and we're very lucky to have her join us today. Uh, the Heritage Foundation and CEPA do a lot of collaboration together, and it's always great when we we come together for an event like this. Uh, the next uh, speaker after that will be Jim Phillips, who is the Senior Research Fellow for the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation, and he'll give us an overview on the situation in Iran. And then finally, Bruce Klinger, who is our Senior Research Fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation. So, uh, Maria, over to you first. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's a big honor to be here today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I will briefly provide the situation with covering um, the coronavirus in Russia domestically, and then also talk a little bit about how Russia covers the situation uh, the uh, and spreads disinformation about coronavirus abroad. Um, and what does it mean in, in terms of um, our support for the transatlantic community. So as we speak, uh, Russia has uh, about um, 100,000 uh, confirmed cases of coronavirus and uh, 73 um, and uh, 6,400 uh, deaths uh, total. Uh, this dynamic of discovering the coronavirus uh, has accelerated recently, but has not always been uh, the case. As a matter of fact, in early March, and even up until to late March, frankly, uh, the Russian authorities have tried to conceal uh, the situation with coronavirus in Russia and actually uh, hid the information. Uh, this is quite normal and, frankly, frequent response that uh, autocrats um, provide when faced with unusual circumstances. Uh, Russia was not an exception and early on a lot of commentators and observers actually compared the situation to coverage of Chernobyl um, explosion or even better uh, the sinking of the submarine Kursk when again uh, Putin actually kept uh, silent about the situation for quite a while and it wasn't until uh, the Western media uh, started being really puzzled um, and raising questions about the situation uh, domestically that the Kremlin was forced uh, to respond. Uh, pretty much the same uh, we have observed until um, recently in Russia with coronavirus as well. Uh, now, um, again, uh, there's reasons to doubt the official numbers as of now, even uh, the Kremlin, even if the Kremlin has been reported, uh, reporting them quite consistently over the last month. And the reasons are, uh, first of all, it's not clear that this uh, spike in diseases started in Russia, as the authorities said, uh, in early April. There's reasons to believe that um, the, the cases were actually uh, spread early on because of the vast um, uh, Chinese tourism to Russia back in December and even January. Already back then, it has been reported uh, that Moscow hospitals have faced a spike in uh, pneumonia uh, cases, which a lot of observers have attributed to possible impact of coronavirus. Uh, in addition, uh, the authorities are not uh, very open about uh, the spread of the cases uh, across the regions, and people who try to ra raise awareness about this are commonly uh, prosecuted uh, in Russia. For example, uh, Russia's political analyst Valery Solovey mentioned uh, during his regular uh, broadcast on uh, Echo of Moscow radio station in mid-May that, uh, in fact, Russia at the time already had about um, 
2,000 of uh, confirmed cases of deaths from coronavirus. Uh, as a result, uh, this podcast was removed uh, from the Echo of Moscow website under request of the Russian authorities. Uh, there's more cases like that. For example, recently the Supreme Court of Russia ruled uh, the you know, explain the uh, penalty punishment uh, against people who spread quote-unquote uh, disinformation in Russia. There's also multiplying cases of doctors uh, being prosecuted and unfortunately uh, I would actually even venture a guess that we eventually may face the situation reminiscent of um, uh, the Soviet doctors case somewhat in the sense that doctors, especially in the regions who suffer from the lack of necessary medical uh, supplies, equip uh, equipment and even protection, uh, they, uh, those of them who try to raise awareness about the situation actually are increasingly prosecuted. Uh, for example, last week uh, in Rostopol of Don, on Don city, there was a case open against the head physician in the hospital who, uh, where the coronavirus uh, patient was identified. Um, so it is, a, it is possible that it's commonly, as it commonly happens in Russia. Unfortunately, people who are on the forefront of this fight uh, against the disease are going to be the ones uh, punished um, first. Um, additional complication is associated to the fact uh, that the Kremlin doesn't really have money uh, to sustain uh, the Russia's population throughout this crisis. Uh, there are some reserves that the Kremlin has accumulated over the years, but it's not anywhere in the rush to, uh, again, waste them on uh, ordinary people, so to speak. Uh, because the Kremlin uh, is visibly concerned uh, about what happens after the crisis ends and uh, with possibilities of Putin's re-election in 2024. Uh, now, because the Kremlin is not supporting the population, and Russia's population has very limited savings and is generally poor, uh, it is unlikely that the Kremlin, the country is going to be able to survive this longer-term quarantine. As a matter of fact, as we speak, Putin just uh, confirmed uh, that this uh, vacation, as they're called in, uh, in Russia, they're not called quarantine, they're called vacation, um, I extended until at least uh, May 11th. But it is not clear that uh, uh, this, is, this situation is sustainable in the long term since the Kremlin does not provide any financial assistance to people or um, uh, especially small and medium enterprises, a lot of which are, gonna, uh, are likely to go bankrupt. Uh, instead, uh, there are a lot of sticks, uh, people who live uh, houses, especially in Moscow, where the quarantine regime is much uh, harsher than the rest of the country. Those people are punished, uh, uh, penalized, fined, uh, but there is no carrots, so there's no assistance. Uh, people actually are uh, officially taking holidays off, days off from work, but this is only sustainable, of course, for state-owned uh, or state-backed enterprises. Uh, the independent businesses are definitely in a dire situation. Uh, so because of that, uh, the economic protest is likely to eventually emerge and create a lot of social stability in the country. Uh, that's another uh, possible concern. And the Kremlin is not likely to be able to continue this indefinitely. As a matter of fact, uh, according to uh, some rumors, they expect the coronavirus situation, the pandemic, to peak, quote unquote, officially to peak in by mid-May. And afterwards, uh, we're going to likely to see the certain lifting and relaxations of these um, limitations. 
regardless of what really happens uh, in reality uh, with this disease, just because the social situation is unlikely to keep stable uh, longer than that. Uh, because the Kremlin definitely controls a lot of uh, information in the country and uh, about this virus, it's not going to be probably too hard to do. But of course, it's definitely going to be very bad for people who will continue getting infected and die uh, from this disease. Um, that's more or less a brief review of what's happening domestically. Uh, internationally, um, Russia early on um, definitely tried to use the situation in order to achieve certain longer-term goals that Russia tries to achieve uh, with respect to uh, the United States and Europe. Uh, especially early on, we have seen and multiple um, institutions that track uh, disinformation coverage have monitored the um, uh, increase, a spike in disinformation campaign uh, in the West, uh, designed as usual to sow discord and essentially question uh, citizens of respective countries about sustainability of the transatlantic uh, lines, uh, especially the European uh, Union, and of course, uh, sort the discourse and mistrust in the local politicians. Um, this has been uh, ongoing, and until recently, uh, we continue uh, witnessing the same effort. In particular, uh, one particular narrative blames the invention of the virus, either on the United States or certain other geopolitical enemies of the Kremlin, for example, Latvians or Lithuanians. Uh, uh, however, there seems to be no one particular uh, consistent narrative that is promoted. And frankly, since early on, uh, this effort has not looked, at least to me, as being very well uh, thought through. Uh, it seems that early on, the Kremlin really considered using this um, uh, situation uh, to continue like this hostile actions against the West, but as the situation started worsening in Russia, uh, the um, uh, very in intentional direction of this uh, disinformation campaigns seemed to actually uh, get diluted a little bit. Uh, simultaneously, as I show in my other research, the Kremlin, uh, especially when the economic times are hard, uh, tends to usually uh, try to re-establish relationships with the West. Uh, that we also have seen throughout this pandemic, especially as the oil prices have really um, collapsed and the longer-term sustainability of Russia's budget situation becomes less and less clear. The effort to uh, convince the West to lift the sanctions or use the pandemic as a pretext to re uh, remove certain sanctions on Russia has become very clear as well. Uh, so the Kremlin, for example, tried to pass the UN resolution about the necessity to lift sanctions, uh, which failed. Um, there is also effort to renegotiate with the President Trump, consisting uh, recently communications and phone calls, provision of the assistance to Italy, the United States and other countries in Europe and uh, outside of Russia, again, trying to show Russia is the only benevolent actor today on this international stage, while the European Union actually fails to deliver and fails to provide for uh, its own countries. Uh, as of now, it's not very clear if this effort will be successful, and we hope uh, it will not be. But as the international community, we need to be aware that the Kremlin is definitely going to be trying to use this situation, and especially the rising um, hostility against uh, China uh, that's spreading among the Western countries in its own advantage, trying to uh, use it in an effort to uh, find, uh, lift uh, the sanctions that is really necessary for the Kremlin in, in order to sustain its long-term uh, survival. And I'll stop here. Thank you.
Thank you, uh, Maria, for that good overview of the situation in Russia. Uh, next, we're going to head south a little bit to Iran, um, where Jim Phillips, uh, Senior Research Fellow for the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation, is going to give us uh, his view and his assessment of what is happening um, in that country. Over to you, Jim. Thanks, Luke. Uh, Iran, uh, which became one of the first epicenters of the coronavirus pandemic outside of China, is suffering tremendously, uh, in part due to the mismanagement, the dishonesty, and the self-serving priorities of a dysfunctional uh, dictatorship. Uh, Iran's Islamic regime initially denied that the virus would uh, be a threat to Iran. And in fact, it bragged about how the Iranian uh, government was providing uh, protective equipment to China. Uh, then it downplayed the threat for political and economic reasons. And, you know, that was very common around the world in many different governments. But what really made uh, Iran different uh, is how Iran has weaponized the narrative of the spread of the virus. Uh, it claims that the U.S. is responsible uh, for starting the virus through the use of a bioweapon that caused the pandemic. And now it's trying to exploit the health crisis by pushing for sanctions relief, uh, despite the fact that U.S. sanctions do not block uh, the uh, import by Iran of medical and humanitarian uh, food and, and other uh, imports. Uh, in fact, those are explicitly uh, uh, waived uh, by U.S. sanctions. Uh, nonetheless, this is an ideological regime. It's going to respond in an ideological way. Uh, but what is clear is that the virus spread in Iran in large part because of Iran's close ties to China. Uh, and Iran then became a key conduit for the spread of the pandemic to the Middle East. Today, Iran's government claims that there's more than 92,000 cases of COVID-19 inside Iran. Uh, and that there's resulted in more than 5,800 deaths, although many public health experts, even in Iran, believe that the numbers are much higher because Iran, like many other countries, doesn't have access to the tests uh, that would tell the real scope of this, this pandemic. Uh, so Iran's uh, rulers initially downplayed the scope and delayed decisive measures to slow the spread of the virus in order to avoid damaging the regime's political, economic, and ideological interests. The government announced the first two deaths shortly before Iran's February 21st uh, presidential uh, uh, parliamentary elections. Uh, and Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei accused Iran's enemies of trying to spread panic in order to dampen voter turnout. Uh, he he knew that the regime was in deep trouble because of, of ongoing repression at home. Uh, Iran had repressed a, a huge outbreak of protests back in November over its price increases. It had the regime had killed uh, an estimated 1,500 people in those protests, and more recently. Uh, 
had squelched other protests after the Revolutionary Guards had shot down a Ukrainian airliner in January uh, during the crisis over Iran's support for Iraqi militias uh, rocketing Iraqi bases at which U.S. troops were stationed to fight ISIS. Uh, so it's a very uh, complicated situation for uh, Iran. Uh, Iran uh, also uh, on February 25th, uh, President Hassan Rouhani had refused to admit that the outbreak was quickly spiraling out of control, claiming that this was, uh, quote, one of the enemy's plots to bring our country into closure by spreading panic. While the precise details of the spread of the virus remain unclear, it is clear that Iran became a hotspot due to its close ties with China. And that inconvenient truth has put the regime in a very awkward position. On the one hand, it constantly stresses that its close ties to China help it in its confrontation with the US. The two countries have staged uh, military maneuvers, naval maneuvers, along with Russia outside the Persian Gulf. Uh, China continues to provide uh, Iran with diplomatic protection at the UN, uh, but it, it's clear that uh, the, the outbreak in Iran, uh, which uh, first occurred in the holy city of Qum, uh, and by the way, that's the, the, the Iranian city that is believed to have the highest number of Chinese uh, expatriates living there, that it spread from Qum, not only infecting Iranians, but uh, possibly tens of thousands of foreign Muslim pilgrims who went to Qum uh, in the months before uh, uh, the shrines were partially shut down. Uh, initial reporting indicated that the virus may have originated with an Iranian businessman who traveled to Wuhan, China, or perhaps a Chinese worker there are several hundred Chinese workers uh, reported to be working on infrastructure projects near Qum. Uh, but I think more importantly, uh, there are more than 700 Chinese students at Qum Cemetery and the Al Mustafa International University. And these gave Qum uh, the highest uh, percentage population of Chinese in Iran. One Iranian Sunni scholar has charged that the COVID-19 a pandemic originated with these Chinese seminary students. And that could be one reason the regime is very reluctant to uh, uh, acknowledge uh, where the, the pandemic came from in Iran. In any event, uh, COVID-19, as the cases began to uh, multiply in Qum, the Iranian regime clearly failed to enact uh, serious countermeasures to contain the outbreak. Religious shrines in Qum remained open as the authorities initially balked at closing them, which would have reduced uh, the income of, of the, the shrines and the foundations uh, that run the shrines uh, would have pocketed from the continued flow of foreign Muslims. And that's very important to Iran now under sanctions, any source of foreign currency. Uh, even after Iran's health ministry uh, called for the closing of the shrines, uh, religious figures uh, resisted the closure. They, they uh, proclaimed that the religious shrines uh, 
uh, had divine powers that would help cure disease and inspire Iranians to resist uh, the disease. Uh, Iran was also slow to halt air travel from China. Uh, it claimed that it all flights ended on February 14th, but on, the flights continued on Mahan Air, which was a, a airline partially owned by Iran's Revolutionary Guards. Uh, they could be moving uh, who knows what from China to Iran. So those flights continued. Uh, President Rouhani publicly refused to institute nationwide quarantines, calling them anarchic and boasted of Iran's public health uh, system. Regime officials uh, bragged that Iran exported face masks to China and a COVID-19 outbreak uh, would not be a problem. The regime saw an opportunity to repair its uh, tattered image after uh, repeated repression of its own people and the shoot down of the Ukrainian airliner. Uh, and that airliner, you know, 176 people died. Most of them were Iranians, uh, but the Re Revolutionary Guards lied for three days before finally admitting that it had shot down the airliner. Uh, so now, uh, the Supreme Leader has uh, deputized the Revolutionary Guards and the Army to lead Iran's national uh, program fighting the virus. And I think this is a means by which the uh, regime hopes to repair its image and shore up uh, the public image of the Revolutionary Guards, which are basically the Praetorian Guards that keep the regime in power. And they're the ones that are responsible through their uh, besiege uh, militia of repressing Iranians on the street. Uh, the, Iran's internal propaganda mills have uh, generated a very rosy picture for Iranian people. At the same time, its external propaganda mills um, magnify the, the outbreak in order to uh, gain uh, sympathy and, and sanctions relief. Uh, but uh, Iranian doctors and nurses uh, in overwhelmed hospitals report that they've been warned by security officials not to reveal the, the true extent of the numbers of infected, the numbers of death, and the shortages of protective equipment. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the Islamist regime in Tehran is, is more concerned about uh, controlling information and controlling people than on uh, controlling the virus. And I think that's evidence of its skewed uh, priorities, including foreign policy priorities in which it continues to spend uh, billions of dollars propping up the Assad regime in Syria and spending millions to send to the Houthi rebels in Yemen, uh, while it claims it doesn't have uh, money to spend on its own people's public health. Uh, security forces stationed in hospitals have threatened to arrest medical personnel who disclose information about the epidemic or the pandemic. Uh, and while public places such as schools and uh, places of worship and, and most of the shrines have been closed down, Iranians have been put at risk by a very callous uh, regime. And that's something they're very aware of. Uh, in late March, a uh, hundred Iranian academics and political and social activists published a letter that held Iran's supreme leader personally responsible for the uh, epidemic becoming a national disaster. 
They charged the regime was not only responsible for concealing the uh, scope of the crisis, uh, but it failed to take measures to curb the spread due to political and religious considerations. They criticized Hamenei for preventing Iranians from receiving American or other humanitarian aid, while he and other officials had access to uh, medical treatments unavailable uh, to most Americans, uh, to most Iranians. Uh, this the regime not only has exposed its own population to uh, increased risk from this pandemic, but uh, it has spread uh, it has spread the disease to other countries. Up to 16 uh, neighboring countries and nearby countries have claimed that Iran was the chief source of the pandemic entering their country. So not only is a sluggish regime a sluggish regime response hurt Iranians, but it's hurt the neighborhood. And Iran has tried to weaponize uh, this information to hurt uh, the U.S. The coronavirus crisis has become another front in Iran's Islamic uh, propaganda campaign against the U.S., the great Satan. The regime accused the U.S. of uh, unleashing a bioweapon. And in fact, uh, uh, the Supreme Leader uh, claimed that in a speech, a public speech on March 22nd, uh, claimed that the U.S. created this virus uh, quote, it was produced specifically for Iran using knowledge about Iranian genetics that were acquired in various ways. Uh, Khamenei also rejected a U.S. offer of medical assistance to help fight the ep epidemic. Iran's Revolutionary Guards have taken the lead in spreading uh, propaganda. General Salami, uh, commander of the Guard, said that uh, the virus uh, is the pro may be the product of an, of an American biological invasion, which first spread to China and then to Iran and the rest of the world. Dr. Ali Karami, a lecturer of medicine at an institution affiliated with the Revolutionary Guards, claims that the US has engineered a virus to develop what he called ethnic weapons that specifically targeted Americans. Uh, so Iran has called for a global fact-finding committee to investigate charges that the pandemic was a U.S. bioweapon attack, and it's called for international monitoring of uh, U.S. laboratories. So uh, you, you can see that Iranian propaganda has developed in close harmony with that of uh, China and, and Russia when it comes to blaming America first uh, for this problem. Uh, but some Iranian health officials apparently didn't get the message, and they publicly criticized China for downplaying the extent uh, of the uh, pandemic, uh, which uh, caught Iran unawares when it spread to Iran. And this led to an un unusual situation where Iran's foreign ministry denounced its own health uh, officials. Uh, and it's you know, it's clear why the foreign ministry will do this, because Iran needs China much more than China needs Iran. Uh, China is its biggest trading partner, its biggest customer for oil, uh, and the number one source of Iran's imports. Uh, so Iran has not allowed this, this crisis to go away. In addition to shifting blame to the great Satan, it's called for... Uh, 
the, the end of US sanctions. It's applied for a $5 billion loan at the IMF, uh, which you know would it hopes will come without any uh, strings attached so we can use those funds for other purposes. Uh, meanwhile, the regime not only rejects uh, help from the US, but also from Doctors Without Borders and other international health organizations. It claims that those uh, humanitarian aid workers would be spies. And I think it shows you the, uh, the depth of the, the paranoia of, of this regime. Iran is trying to uh, borrow a page out of Saddam Hussein's uh, playbook in the 1990s when he sought uh, uh, relief from US sanctions under the UN Oil for Food program. Uh, that program became a lifeline for the regime, which diverted uh, some of the medical supplies to the black market, gaining foreign currency to continue propping up its security forces and continuing aggression uh, over outside Iraq's borders, Iran would do much the same. Uh, so I, I think the US uh, should continue what it's done in the past, that's offer transparent medical help for the Iranian people, but not in a form that would prop up the Iranian regime. Because uh, uh, the bottom uh, line is that this is a regime that really uh, doesn't care that much for its people. In fact, it sees uh, people as uh, the Iranian people as the chief threat to its continued existence. Uh, and sadly, uh, they put a higher priority on saving face than saving Iranian lives. And I don't think that will, that will stop in the future. Unfortunately, uh, once again, the Iranian people are the biggest losers of this crisis. And I'll stop right there. Thank, thanks, Jim, uh, for that very detailed overview. Now over to Northeast Asia. Well, actually, really Washington, D.C., but to talk about Northeast Asia will be Bruce Klinger. So over to you, Bruce. Uh, thanks very much, Luke. And thanks to all of you who are watching. Uh, hopefully, I figured out how to turn on both my camera and my microphone. Uh, since we sent out the notice for this event, the North Korean cover-up of COVID really has been superseded by the cover-up of Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader. We don't know if he's dead, incapacitated, or he's doing fine. Thank you very much. Uh, but I'll stay with the original plan and talk about COVID, but I'm happy to talk about Kim Jong-un during the, the Q&A. Uh, to put the summary up, up front, North Korea has said still that officially there are no cases, let alone deaths in North Korea. Uh, none of us believe that. Uh, there was a lot of concern early on that given the very poor health conditions or the, the health industry, the, the medical system in North Korea, as well as the already emaciated and very weakened state of the North Korean populace, that COVID could really go through North Korea like wildfire. You know, that said, right now, it, it looks like they dodged a bullet to, to a great extent. They're already, we're already seeing indications that schools in, in Pyongyang are starting to reopen. Uh, we're not seeing the kind of uh, reports as we saw in other countries of, of widespread uh, infections and uh, certainly not satellite imagery of, of mass graves being dug. Uh, dug. You know, that said, uh, I need to emphasize that North Korea really is, as we said at CIA when I was there, the hardest of the hard target. Uh, compared to the other countries we've heard about today, 
uh, Russia and Iran are, are open books. So we always preface a bit. Um, but kind of going back to the beginning, um, there have been some reports that internally North Korea authorities have talked to uh, local authorities that there have been cases, uh, but that hasn't been confirmed by the official media. Um, the, they, they've talked about in these internal documents that there were cases in two provinces as well as Pyongyang. And the two provinces are, as if you think of a, a clock, down at seven o'clock, way up at one o'clock, and then Pyongyang in the center of the clock, it's hard to believe that there weren't cases in between those, those provinces. Um, but, and there have also been some reports from South Korean groups that have access to people in North Korea, that there were at least 100 deaths of North Korean soldiers, that there was starvation, there, was, uh, there were infections widespread, uh, but we're really not seeing that in widespread reporting. And that could be because North Korea imposed very strict measures right after the, the outbreak of COVID in China. They closed their borders. They canceled all flights to and from Russia and China, which is the, the most travel that uh, there, there is. Uh, and they even went to the extent of shutting down state-run smuggling operations across the Chinese border. Uh, and those have been used by the regime to make money and, and supersede the UN sanctions that were imposed after the nuclear and missile tests. So uh, what we're seeing is that the, the trade with China, which accounts for 90% of North Korea's trade, foreign trade, uh, was cut. And what that's doing is exacerbating already very tough uh, economic conditions in North Korea. Back in December at a senior level meeting, even before COVID had really hit, Kim Jong-un had warned uh, not only the authorities, but really the populace uh, that they would once again have to tighten the belt after several years of promising that conditions would improve. So in a way, the, the self-imposed COVID measures that the regime uh, put on itself uh, was indirectly increasing enforcement of UN sanctions. China and other countries had uh, you know, gone, uh, gone around the sanctions. Uh, but both China and North Korea imposed measures uh, that cut off the trade. So what this is doing is uh, making it more difficult for the regime to get cash. Uh, and some of the, the other measures that they were doing uh, was they've imposed a, a quarantine on all cargo that comes into North Korea. Uh, they have about a week or two quarantine on that. So that is also impacting the humanitarian assistance that is trying to get to North Korea. Uh, President Trump and prior to that, the State Department had offered U.S. assistance uh, on COVID, the medical equipment, uh, and the regime turned that down. But we've seen reporting that uh, North Korea reached out to South Korea and China for, uh, if not monitoring equipment, at least masks and, and gloves and other uh, medical uh, gear. So uh, what we're seeing is that, um, you know, it seems that North Korea may have avoided the worst of what had been predicted on COVID um, and that the, the humanitarian assistance, uh, some of it is getting through from non-government organizations such as Doctors Without Borders and others. I think one thing to, to mention about humanitarian assistance, there's some who assert that the population is, is in dire straits, not only because of during the COVID, but prior to that, because of sanctions, the US sanctions, UN sanctions, 
Uh, and that's not the case. The, the situation is dire because of decades of socialist economic uh, procedures and policies by the regime. Uh, there are no sanctions in either US or UN resolutions against humanitarian assistance or food or medicine. And in all US laws and UN resolutions, there are specific paragraphs which point out that these sanctions in no way hinder the provision of food, medicine, or humanitarian assistance. Now, what has happened is some of the assistance uh, is sort of inadvertently being re restricted, either because now North Korea is quarantining uh, cargo coming in, including humanitarian assistance. Uh, the financial transactions, uh, the banks themselves are increasing their due diligence procedures because of all the uh, the money laundering that North Korea, as well as other entities that were helping it, uh, were engaged in. So the U.S. continues to offer humanitarian assistance, uh, but right now the, the focus is more on what the condition of the North Korean leader is, uh, and that is yet another uh, information black hole. So I'll close it there, and I look forward to all of your questions. Thanks, uh, thanks, Bruce, for that overview. Um, so now it's we have the uh, question and answer time. Um, I again ask you if you have a question to uh, propose, please uh, submit it uh, in the uh, question box that you can find on your screen. Um, here's a question for uh, Maria. Uh, from a member of the uh, virtual audience. Do you think that the Russians are hiding the number of cases of COVID-19 to avoid the appearance of a loss of military readiness? Uh, interesting. So I think the Russians are hiding uh, the num real number for all kinds of reasons. So one uh, very big reason is actually the lack of sensitivity of the tests. Uh, it's true that I personally know people uh, who had to pass the test four times before it finally showed that they had coronavirus, even if they had the, all of the associated symptoms. So since early on, despite the fact that Russian tests got uh, have received the uh, WHO approval, uh, they are not. Uh, we knew that they are not sensitive enough. Uh, second of all, of course, there is like this overall uh, uh, legitimacy questions. The authorities have to give the uh, um, uh, look, project the view, the, this look that uh, they have things under control. And so that's why from the starters, the real numbers of the um, uh, in fact, it have been underreported, and most importantly, uh, what's been done is uh, since uh, early on, unlike uh, for ex the, the the reporting on the um, uh, cases is very different from the way it's done in Europe. Uh, for example, in Italy, or if I'm not mistaken, New York, if a person dies from anything but uh, had coronavirus at the time of death, uh, the the death is reported as a coronavirus death. As a matter of fact, in New York, I think they're revising it even to increase uh, to, to include cases where coronavirus has not been confirmed, but there were the symptoms. In Russia, it's pretty much the opposite. If a person dies and had something else 
along with coronavirus, the death is typically reported until even now is uh, a death from something else, like a heart attack or, I don't know, diabetes or something else. And uh, it's, it was very, very telling the, the way the federal TV channels portrayed the early deaths early on. Essentially, they would honestly just list the number of associated diseases that the person had. And the coverage essentially was meant to show that coronavirus was hardly to blame for uh, for this uh, death given the associated uh, uh, complications. Uh, so this actually tells you uh, that the real numbers are much higher. But it is true, of course, that there is also this uh, international aspect of it. And by the way, the Kremlin has itself to blame for uh, the dire situation with the army uh, because it actually procrastinated with delaying the um, uh, celebration of the uh, Victory Day on May 9th. That's typically taking place in, uh, takes place on May 9th every day, every year. This year, it was also supposed to be a very important uh, date uh, because it's one of the uh, uh, like important uh, days, a certain number of uh, years after the war. Uh, and uh, because it delayed for so long the uh, cancellation of the parade, a lot of uh, military officers uh, reportedly got infected. And so right now we're actually getting quite scary reports about the number of infected among the Russian military servicemen and officers. And this is definitely not, uh, does not look good, even if the risks for the younger people are generally lower uh, with uh, COVID-19, uh, still um, it's there. Uh, so I don't think the key element, key aspect of this underreport is necessarily Russia's projection of this military strength and power, but certainly is a part of the story. Thank you for that, Maria. The next question is for Bruce. If Kim Jong-un is incapacitated due to COVID-19 or some other reason, what would happen to the command and control of nuclear weapons in Korea? Well, as is the case uh, often with North Korea, we don't know. Uh, it would really go to the successor, which is uh, the subject of a lot of speculation right now. Um, the, the, uh, we don't know if he is dead or incapacitated, as I said before. And the rumors are that it's from a heart attack, it's from a failed uh, heart surgery, or even injury from a failed missile test that he observed. Uh, South Korean officials particularly are saying he's fine. Uh, there are no concerns. He's simply isolating himself uh, away from uh, COVID, and perhaps one of his bodyguards had had COVID. Um, so the successor would have control, and right now the speculation is that his sister may be the the chosen one. Uh, but there's no formal succession plan in the North Korean Constitution, as there was not during the the death of the previous leader. Uh, up until about two years ago. Uh, the consensus was that a, a strict authoritarian Confucian society like North Korea would never allow a woman to lead. But since then, in the last couple of years, uh, Kim's sister has gained a lot of stature, a lot of authority, uh, some very senior titles. So she's seen as, as the most likely successor. Uh, but there's really much about North Korea's nuclear strategy and the command and control that we don't know. But in such a centralized regime, it really would be the leader who has sole control. Thanks, Bruce. And the next question is for Jim Phillips. Uh, Jim, has Iran's uh, relationship with uh, its elites and the PRC been damaged or changed in any way because of a change in public sentiments to China as a result of COVID-19? 
So basically, it has the the feelings from the the man on the street, so to speak. Um, is that is the frustration there being translated into maybe a shift or a change in policy between Tehran and Beijing? I I think uh, just anecdotally, there has been evidence that uh, the Iranian street looks at China. Uh, a lot differently now than it did B BC before coronavirus. Uh, you know, there was a substantial amount of grumbling about chi cheap Chinese products that have flooded into the country, uh, but uh, the regime continued to va value in, in the highest uh, regard China's uh, support, not only diplomatic, uh, but economic ties. Uh, in the past, uh, before uh, UN sanctions were put on, uh, Iran imported a lot of Chinese weaponry. So it's clear that the regime sees its interests tied uh, with Beijing. But uh, Iranian people in general increasingly have turned against the regime, even the core supporters, uh, the urban poor and rural poor that uh, received the benefits of some of the state welfare policies. Those once were the core supporters of the regime, but in uh, since uh, late 2017, even they have staged uh, massive demonstrations against the regime. So I think there is a, uh, a tide going out in terms of popular opinion uh, regarding China in Iran, but you know, the regime calls the shots, so it, it's going to re remain as close as it can to Beijing. Yeah, thanks for that, Jim. Uh, we have time for uh, just a couple more questions, so if, if you feel the urge to ask, um, go ahead and type it in now um, before we uh, before we run out of time for this webinar. Uh, the next question is actually back to Maria. Um, do you see Russia's information campaign having any effects on uh, NATO or EU uh, members uh, that would diminish both NATO and EU as the preferred organizations to provide assistance against uh, COVID-19? It's a very interesting question. I think uh, we need uh, a little bit uh, of a longer term perspective to be able to answer it well. But early on, especially um, late March, uh, when uh, before the situation uh, got significantly worse in Russia, but was already developing quite, uh, un, uh, quite badly in uh, uh, Europe, in Italy, uh, for example, uh, definitely there was the moment where it felt like uh, Russia was getting some upper hand uh, by you know, communicating this message uh, that the EU is weakened and unable to deliver, NATO also being uh, impotent in, in the face of the situation, and uh, essentially the EU members being left uh, for, for their own um, uh, Sake for, to, to, to save themselves, especially in Italy, which uh, has uh, generally has, has been more susceptible to Russia's disinformation as, as more political actors that uh, tend to embrace for Russian views and positions. Uh, yes, at the moment, at the time, it felt uh, like it could have given certain advantage to the Kremlin. Uh, but increasingly, as the situation got worse in Russia itself, and also as, frankly, the medical equipment that Russia sent uh, to Italy and uh, uh, the United States actually uh, has been, uh, it was 
has not uh, has been found not necessarily useless but quite controversial at the very least uh, the recent examples was actually the set of boxes with medical equipment which were allegedly said by the russian orthodox church by the patriarch to italy but for some reason those boxes were had these uh, signatures on them that they were uh, manufactured in china and only meant for use by switzerland and those issues like that definitely undermine the uh, regional intent and the uh, Kremlin posture. Similarly, the medical assistance, by the way, that was sent to the United States was found to be largely useless. And of course, uh, uh, it was also shown that uh, probably intentionally, uh, was manufactured, at least in part, in part by uh, one of the Russian companies that's on the sanctions list. So definitely, again, shows you the intent to uh, you know, put this point across that you, we need to lift sanctions in order to be able to help each other in, in the midst of pandemic. So overall, yes, early on, it felt like Russia was getting some leverage in the midst of chaos um, imposed on uh, the West by this disease. And uh, very similar, frankly, in the way it happened with the war in Donbass and the initial uh, annexation of the Crimea. It seems that the West uh, just frankly takes time to catch up uh, with Russia's um, approaches. And early on, Russia may have certain leverage because of the unpredictability and lack of organized effort uh, to respond to it on the Western side. But typically, uh, throughout the long term, uh, the West uh, responds quite um, deliberately. And I don't think, in this sense, coronavirus is going to be an exception. Uh, we see that none of the initiatives Russia has tried to push uh, regarding the sanctions lift has been able to succeed so far. So we'll keep watching. Thanks, uh, Maria. It does seem that Russia has a special ability to take advantage of these situations. Um, uh, Bruce, uh, the final question is for you. Can you elaborate on North Korea's health system and its ability to deal with an outbreak like COVID-19? Well, e even in normal circumstances, the, the North Korean health system is abysmal. Uh, when visitors go in, uh, a lot of it is North Korea will either show a very positive or, or very negative view to try to either stimulate uh, assistance or, or not. But uh, people have commented that uh, they, they lack even the most basic of not only equipment, but of supplies. So that was one of the reasons why there was such great concern that uh, there could be really a, a massive epidemic if COVID got loose in, in North Korea. And as far as we can tell, it, it hasn't. Uh, and that is more likely because of the very draconian um, measures that the regime imposed rather than because of, of the health system. So I had mentioned that they cut off uh, travel across the borders. They even imposed very strict internal travel restrictions. Uh, just one thing, getting back to the earlier question about nuclear weapons, because there's so much about North Korea we don't know, that's one of the reasons why there's a great concern about a succession occurring without a formal plan. Uh, there's the fears of an explosion, either in the sense of North Korea lashing out at its neighbors because of a perceived threat, or just to create a rally around the flag effect around the, the new leader, or an implosion of regime collapse, instability, uh, civil war, warring factions, who has control of the nuclear weapons. So that's why, although we don't uh, won't shed a tear if Kim Jong-un dies, uh, there is a lot of concern and anytime there is a, a succession, uh, as was the case with the previous ones. That said, we had those fears before and the regime perpetuated itself. And I think it's more likely that the regime uh, would continue as opposed to either the explosion or implosion.
Thank you for that, Bruce. Uh, I would like to thank our panelists today, Maria, Jim, and Bruce for um, participating, taking time out of your busy schedules. Uh, we're still busy at home, uh, in case our bosses are watching, let's make that clear. Uh, and thanks uh, uh, particularly to you, Maria, and SIPA, the people over at SIPA. It's great to have that collaboration again. And I wanna thank everyone who's taken the time to um, log in and watch this. Uh, this uh, webinar will be made available on our website at heritage.org within 48 hours if you want to watch it again. And uh, I wish and hope that everyone remains uh, healthy and safe during these times. So thank you very much and thank you again to our panelists.